Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Time, Time Bandits, Bandits Minute. Minute. Time Bandits Minute is a podcast in which Duncan Shields and Curtis Blaze analyze and scrutinize the 1981 Terry Gilliam movie, Time Bandits. One minute at a time. All right, minute four. The Horse Minute. The Horse Minute. Yeah, we start with Kevin saying, uh, it is off, or finishing saying, it is off, and turning off his light, and then he snuggles up under the covers in his pajamas. And uh, I don't know, are you guys pajama guys? I was never really a pajama guy. How about you? When I was a little kid, yeah, we always wore uh, PJs. I think my mom and dad, that was a big thing growing up in Detroit. We always had like flannel PJs for the winter, and then spring pjs or summer pjs but then i can't remember what age i think it was probably middle school my first sleepover when i realized oh nobody wears these anymore <laughs> and i said <laughs> i should probably go with like shorts and a t-shirt or um lounge pants and still to this day i have a weird unless it's super cold i don't like wearing any kind of a t-shirt i don't want anything touching my upper body but at the same I- i'll always wear something either shorts or sweatpants uh, yeah. For for like a sleepwear. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I've got to be I've got to be naked. No way. I can't have anything on. Everything twists around sideways. I hate that. <laughs> Duncan. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed this, but it isn't just me talking to you today. That's right. We have someone with us. It is Mr. Alan J. Sanders from the Wilder Ride. Hey. Yeah. I, I just kind of jumped right in there with the PJ discussion. So. <laughs> Welcome, Alan. That's Welcome. how we do it. <laughs> I felt like I had just put, you know, maybe I walked into the wrong sleepover. I was like, oh, hey, hey guys. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Welcome to the Time Bandit Minute. You're getting one of the, uh, you're getting one of the very first minutes. So you're in the setup minutes. I love it. Love it. And I, I was so happy when you guys first announced that we were going to do Time Bandits. I jumped on it when I saw it on Facebook. This is a movie, you know, there's, there's a handful of movies that are classics in my mind that I actually did see in the theater when I was a kid. Like, I had just, I was just about to turn 11 when this movie hit the theaters. And so it was that sweet spot where all those movies that were coming out in between, you know, Star Wars in 77 all the way through, you know, the mid-80s. Like, that's my sweet spot, and this is one of those films. Yeah. What was special about this time, I think, is that we'd hit a point in movie making where we were at the pinnacle of practical effects. Yeah. Things started looking real, and films started being fast enough so that it wasn't all grainy in the dark areas. Mm-hmm. We had a high range of, of light we could use. We had effects that looked great on screen as practical effects. It was like the pinnacle of filmmaking before we started changing over into the digital style. Yeah, definitely. And then, yes, it was the cusp. Is that, that just the beginning of the overlap of when they started to, you know, computers were getting introduced, and now they've uh, now they've taken over. Do you remember the first time, like, do you remember the, the actual circumstances of the first time you saw Time Bandits, Alan? Yeah, actually, I was, a uh, like many kids, you start watching your Saturday morning cartoons and you're wa- seeing the previews for movies coming to your local cinema. And yeah. I remember seeing the Time Bandits trailer and having already seen Star Wars in the theater, having seen Empire Strikes Back, you know, I, I just, I thought, this has got to be it. Uh, I, I got to go to the theater. I've got to see this movie. And I remember begging my dad, my brother and I, who's, my brother's two years younger than me, we were begging, we got we want to go see Time Bandits. Had no idea what the heck the movie really was. And I remember yeah. <laughs> when we watched the movie, I think my dad didn't get it. And as an adult, I'm thinking, <laughs> man, I feel bad. I feel like we dragged him to this movie and he's almost like, you know, snoring in the, in the, in the seat. <laughs> it 
affected me. Like as a kid watching it, I related to the kid in the story. And then yeah. there, was a, there was a piece of me yeah. sitting in the theater going, I get having parents that don't seem to care about your interests. I get, I hate to say it, my dad was a military guy. And as I got older, I understand he grew up in a different era with different yeah. priorities. So I don't want to, I don't want anything to come across. He passed away four years ago now. He, we had a great adult relationship. I just don't think he was a dad that was understood how to deal with kids. He just sure. wasn't a kid's dad. Like yeah. He wanted me to be an adult already so that way I could do adult things. I just think when I saw it in the theater and I, I never had an issue with why the kid wanted to stay with Sean Connery, right? I mean, yeah, I get totally. Because here's an adult who finally took actual interest in him. I felt bad when the guys had to kidnap him. And then at the end, you know, everybody's like, oh, my God, that's a weird ending. I'm not, and I'm not meaning to jump all over the place. But in some small ways, as a kid looking back, I'm like, yeah, I don't know that I would mind if my mom and dad just disappeared. And I could go back to somebody who might be a cooler parent. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is uh, we get some more stuff with the parents later, but in this in this particular minute here, we get some uh, we get the this this is a sequence. Well, okay, there's some heavy rustling from the wardrobe that wakes Kevin up, and uh, he looks over at the wardrobe, and then you can see some drawings taped to his wardrobe, and it looks like there's an astronaut there. I think it's hard to make out the other drawings and sketches. To the left of the wardrobe, a lot of. I've got a lot of notes on these. Things. I sure wish that. I mean, this is why I'm like, oh, my my uh, my kingdom for like a 4K, you know, high def re release or something. Because there's so there's like this this collages all over his walls of like sketches and drawings and and I want to I want to inspect every one of them, but a lot of them are kind of hard to make out with the with the edition that I have. But one thing to the left is to the left of his wardrobe. There we got it. We see a pair of old boxing gloves. Which to me is a little unusual right. for Kevin. I'm like, what? Kevin doesn't strike me as a boxing glove type of guy. Oh, well, he talks a lot about the Greeks being able to kill each other in 44 different ways with their bare hands. So I imagine maybe he's done a little uh, boxing research for sure. But then below the boxing gloves, there's a puppet theater, like the like a Punch and Judy old timey puppet theater box, and we see that later in the show. Yeah, as an adult watching this now, as opposed to a child, and I know we kind of just kind of jumped right in, but but I. I've always wondered how much Terry Gilliam was basically playing with us was, are we living an entire adventure in this kid's head and they put all these clues in the bedroom? Or is it because all of these clues in the bedroom, the kid was sort of almost selected by whatever random right. face to pick him because he had the imagination. He had the, 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 the scope and imagine all these possible you know outcomes and futures and imagine being in all these different worlds and having these fighting techniques or whatever. And, and I love it because I don't know that there's a definite answer one way or the other. No, that's, and that's the good part of it. Like to me, it's, it really hammers home this whole, was it all a dream, you know, question, uh, except for the untimely demise of the parents at the <laughs> the conclusion of the film. It's like, you know, like, oh, oh, I guess maybe it was a dream. Yeah. Wait a second. Are they dead? The end. Like, so it's, uh, it, it kind of doesn't or, seem like a dream after that. Or does point. the dream well, continue and, and that's the thing. into In the order current? For this or is, to be is it real, still a dream? Yeah. Who knows? Right. In order for this to be real, all we have to do is explain how they exploded when they touched it. Oh, uh, that's evil. The argument for the rest of it is that it could be a dream, especially when we start talking about this minute, when the, uh, when the knight bursts forth from the, from the wardrobe, he doesn't, he, he comes into the room the same way that the bandits do later on, 
But he doesn't leave the same way. The wormhole rules don't work the same way in this one as it does in the rest of the movie. It's really interesting, yeah. And also, this horse, I mean, the literal knight on horseback that explodes out of his wardrobe and tears it apart. Um, you know, I, I sort of, just from a practical side, I kind of wonder about the horse in these scenes. Because how do you get a horse to, like, willfully charge through a wall, even if it's just balsa wood or whatever? That's That, that horse has got to be driven to do that because it comes charging out. Right and like, well, in order to do that, you hire the extremely talented Mister Brian Bose, whose specialty seems to be making horses do stuff that look dangerous. <laughs> I wonder if he has like a long-standing relationship with this horse, or if he just digs his heels in and uh, you know gooses them into doing what he wants them to do. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe the horses have learned to trust him. <laughs> I don't know. Last time I le- I turned out okay, so we'll do it again. Well, horses, my wife actually grew up up in upstate New York with a, a lot of horses, and she yeah. learned how to break horses. She actually broke her own horse at one point oh. to be able to get it to, uh, and it would only let her ride because of that. She was the sure. only one that the horse would trust on its back. And she said, basically, horses are a little bit like dogs. You know, they can be trained, but they have strong wills and strong personalities, and yeah. sometimes they just choose to do their own thing. For sure. For sure. Yeah, that's definitely the impression I got. Well, it, as long as we're talking about dangerous horse things, there's a scene in this movie where the horse leaps over Kevin's bed. Yeah. And we know, just because we know that in 1984, they didn't have CGI to do this with. Yeah. So, I mean, he really appears to be in the room with the horse. This is my big question. Like, it's he's uh, rearing up and he's, he swings his sword around and, like, cuts down Kevin's uh, room light. A dangling room light and within a shower of right. sparks and it really i wonder a lot about like is this a horse in a literal bedroom rearing around like this because i would hope that it's a set well, it has to be like with a wall well, with well, a wall yeah, it missing. has to be a set like they didn't just you know bring a horse into a room and say okay you know freak out you know wild out with your horse <laughs> and uh hey, and, horse, we'll, freak and out. we'll we'll keep the uh We'll keep the camera close because the, the shots are all really close. And that could either be because if the camera's tight, then uh, it hides a lot. You can, you, right. you know, or it can be that like the camera needed to be tight because they were actually in a small room and they couldn't get the camera well, any further away than from, than that. The, the tight shots to me suggest that they're just on a set somewhere. All they would have had to build for this is a ceiling. Sure. And they're, they're shooting up. It's... They're shooting up at this horse. They throw some stuff in there. They blow some leaves and dirt and, yeah. and, you know, the light and everything in there. He cuts it off with a sword. And the shot is, you know, two seconds. Yeah, exactly. Well, and if you really look at the the cuts, there's only one cut that shows the horse and Kevin in the exact same space. And yeah. that's when the horse is so close to camera when it's jumping. It's probably not even jumping over the bed. It's the impression that he's jumping over the bed. And this is obviously a set at this point to give the horse plenty of room to run and get to this position for this yeah. particular cut. Right. Probably not going to yeah, no, happen. It would have right. needed a, a good, you know, gallop to get into the space. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the nice thing is when we cut to the reverse shot, uh, or I guess the side shot, we see now Kevin seeing it running off into the woods. But I truly believe they were either on a set or outdoors creating the idea of a room with maybe only two sides. Because this shot was straight on where the horse jumps. It's pretty much a a straight on shot. It's not even a, you know, on an right. angle. It's straight. Yeah. On. It's just a back wall. Yeah. He could have been in a warehouse with lo- right lighting. They would have had, and, and in order to have Kevin and the horse as far away as, as the horse probably was from Kevin be in focus, 
they probably had to have a pretty long lens from pretty far away. Right. In order to get that depth of focus to get, you know, you know, several, you know, 10 feet into focus at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I think the, the, the big thing right here is in terms of a filmmaking technique is it's it's the same thing as how Indiana Jones tricks us into think that the guy that falls off the truck gets run over by the truck. Right. The horse isn't right. anywhere close to even the foot of the bed. It's jumping over something in front of the foot of the bed. But the framing and the and the focal length tricks us because it's going so quickly to yeah. think that he actually did jump over the bed. But I don't yeah. think he, he's not anywhere close to where Kevin is. Yeah. All right. Answered. All right. Uh, now, the knight himself has a rather large stag's head ornament on the top of his helmet. And that's not something that I have seen before, I don't think. That seems like a, a huge uh, liability in, in, in battle, if you were going to actually wear that in, uh, in battle. There was a series of books on which the movie Black Cauldron is based on, uh, a Disney movie from the 80s. I had that whole series of books, and on them, they depicted knights wearing horns. Not not a whole stag's head, but the horns were fixed, and they were deer horns. Yeah, sure. So I've seen this imagery before. Well, we've got, like, I did a little research on it, and this, this specifically looks like an English medieval knight, because uh, the, the, the crest on the top, well, first of all, crest comes from... Uh, latin christa meaning tuft or plume so you see it on like the roman helmets but they had like the big red uh brush you know on their on the on the top of their helmets and then the vikings like you said often had like literal bird wings or animal heads or uh or actual antlers but um but the fan crest that was holding onto the fan would start to get cut into silhouettes to suggest um, animals, like to suggest the outline of animals. And then around the 13th or 14th centuries, it started to evolve into like actual 3D sculptures, like the one on the top of this night here. And in some of the pictures on like Wikipedia and online and stuff like that, they got huge. They look like they weigh like 30 pounds. There's these giant, massive animals crouching on the tops of helmets, almost like, uh, you know, like the wigs of nobility in, uh, in, you know, the 18th century when they had these giant ornate wigs, you know, just started to get out of control. But they were only usually worn in uh, tournaments, you know, so they were for show, like they were kind of like ornamental and they were, check Mm -hmm. out this, cool sculpture on top of my head there was nothing that you'd actually wear into battle because somebody would just have to reach up and grab this giant sculpture on the top of your head and then just you know tear you down and uh so they they didn't actually wear them into battle and then after the tournaments faded out this kind of ornamentation did as well well and you're right in terms of the practicality which is what we're talking about and in terms of the symbolism though which is kind of the angle i took um and i'm going to you know, dig into my Princess Mononoke background, but right a stag is typically, you know, the protector of the forest, like the protector sure. of the creatures of the woods. Sure. And I think it's a it's a symbolic gesture that you've got this character who's now we see, tr- you know, jumping into the woods, the protector of all creatures, all good things, all live things. Hmm. And um, and if you even go to the to like Native American views of the stag or like images, or if you had let's say a spirit animal that was a stag. Yeah. It's actually considered a messenger or like a impending, uh, like if you see one, that's something, some some new message, some some information's coming your way. Great. So Interesting. from maybe, and I, and I don't know, because I, I mean, I didn't interview Terry Gilliam. I don't know. <laughs> but is it because it's a it's it's a precursor to the uh, 
the bandits coming. That the, the this is the the first message, the first indication that Kevin's about to go on an adventure. Like this is almost like the ghost of Christmas past or something. Like this is this is this is visit well, number one. Well, not even the ghost. Of, if if you were going to do if you were to do Dickens, it'd be this is the Marley. This is a uh, hey, you're about yeah. to be visited by other spirits. Sorry, yeah, exactly. That's what I meant. Yeah. But, but in I mean, all honesty, I do believe that when you go back and rewatch the movie, once you know the context, yeah. when you've got evil, which technically represents the elimination of all life, the elimination yeah. of all creatures, and then the, the movie's actually opening with a knight with a stag that represents the protector of all creatures, it's setting you up for a battle between good and evil. Sure. Perfect. I like it. In this knight's shield, and we haven't really talked about the rules of canon yet, but in the comic book... We see a we see a good drawing of his shield, and I'm assuming that the way the rest of the comic is drawn, that they had stills to work from. He's got a lot of either dragon or lion imagery uh, worked into his shield and on the on the leather protecting thing yeah. for his horse cowl. By the way, so, do you recognize any other uh, brand of something that uses a very similar lion from that shield on the comic strip that you kind of sent me as part of the the background information? A brand. You guys ever hear of Lowenbrow beer? Lowen- oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> That's I mean, the exact lion logo for Lowenbrow. Same, same is it symbol. the exact one? Nice. Yeah. And uh, the reason why Lowenbrow, by the way, used the, that, the lion is for them, it represented majesty, strength, justice, and military might, as well as deathless courage. That's right. The courage of a lion. So what about the knight? What about the knight's point of view there? Well, this, this guy. Yeah. Okay, we have this knight who somehow came through a closet into a bedroom and then ran off into some woods. This must be... And according to the script, he was chasing somebody. Oh. So I'm trying to imagine, according to the rules of this movie, how that happened. Was he... Did he chase someone into a wormhole and end up in the closet? I assume he came through the same kind of situation that the that the bandits do later to end up in the closet. Except that he was bursting through. Yeah. So so he's at a so he's at a gallop coming through the uh coming through the wardrobe chasing after somebody. But there, nobody came out of the wardrobe before him. I'm gonna argue that this has nothing to do with the wormholes that actually allow for the 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 travel later in the movie. That this is actually truly symbolically a messenger, which means as a vision or as whatever, it doesn't have to follow the same rules because it's been sent only to Kevin. And that's why the, the the horse the horse doesn't probably even know it's breaking through anything because from the vision's perspective, Kevin's imagining the horse breaking through. The horse just is running through, rearing, and keeping and keeps going, oh. basically saying, "Get ready, something's coming." I like that. And sure, because by the way, of... not only is something coming, do you see where I just kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, broke through? Get ready. <laughs> well, that works for me too because. That has been a question I've had about this scene. It doesn't follow the rules of the wormholes for the rest of them. It is more like a vision or a dream. Yeah. Because later on we'll find, you know, Kevin's dad walks in and there is no mess anymore. Everything is clean again. In fact, Kevin opens his eyes and everything's clean again. Mm-hmm. Everything's reconstructed. Yeah. I think it's it's fascinating to me. The idea that I had was because the trees in the forest, as the night runs away, the trees are kind of evenly spaced. And they're kind of, there's like a, they're on either side of a path. And because the, uh, the knight's armor is somewhat ceremonial and less battle ready that I thought maybe he was, I was thinking maybe he's in like mid joust 
and then a, a portal opened up in front of him and he just had no choice <laughs> because of momentum to just run into the black window came out of the wardrobe you know freaked out in the room for a second and then just uh kept on going and then looked back behind him and there was nothing there anymore and he was like okay that was weird i don't know but i like i like this idea of him being a vision i, I also yeah, think we have to remember that, that... we're getting it from the perspective of what an, i guess supposed to be an eight-year-old yeah nine-year-old yeah so the the imaginings and and it's hard unless you know you can go back if you've got kids and you can see how they've had their first nightmares and you talk to them about what they saw it's amazing how the mind of a child envisions a whole lot more that can't happen but they believe it anyway yeah yeah for sure so i really i've always thought of it not as a kid when i saw it but you know going back as an adult that it really was you're about to go on an adventure get ready yeah I want to talk a little bit about this this scream that happens here. It's a very strange scream. I think it's supposed to be like a war cry from the night, but it honestly kind of doesn't sound a whole. It doesn't sound very human, you know. It's so it's it's a it's a sound that's been used in other places too. Maybe even in this movie. Yeah, I think it's I think it's part of the sound that the creatures make the like some of the minions make in the end. But uh, some of the minions, uh, it seems like I. Is this the scream that the Minotaur makes? Yeah, in, uh, I think you're right. Ancient Greece? Yeah. The mind of Terry Gilliam. We talk about the mind of a child, but that's nothing compared to the mind of Terry well, Gilliam. Well, he held on. He held on to the magical child parts. He Somehow they, he, he, <laughs> he brought them with him to adulthood, which is a very rare thing for people to do. But he, he, he kept it he kept it going, which is a very, a very good thing that he did but kevin ducks under the covers and i love that uh, that's another thing i love about kids is that hiding under the covers effectively <laughs> prevents monsters like monsters will just be like ah shoot he ma- he made it under Where'd the covers he go? he's got he's got the shields up well we'll get him we'll get him <laughs> we'll get him tomorrow Dang night it. let's go a monster that's so mind-numbingly stupid that it thinks if you can't see it it can't see you <laughs> yeah that's right he was well, here again, a second ago it's how a kid thinks yeah, exactly. And I like the the sound design here because he goes under as the scream and the forest wind fade to silence. And then, you know, he slowly peeks back out, but it's all done in one shot. And it's just, it's just sound. You you can just with the, just with the sound effect, you hear like that whole world fade and then mm-hmm. he's back in his room and it's all done with just a sound cue. And I, I think that's, that was really effective. But then he looks back. Yeah. He peeks, he peeks out. And he looks back, and everything's fully intact, papers and all. There's no mess. His light's okay. His wardrobe's okay. So, I don't know. Yeah. I like no, this. I, uh, as a, I'll go back to where we started with this minute bringing me in. As a kid in the theater, I was, I was hooked. I was, oh, yeah. What is happening? I, it was a great way for a movie to open for me. And going back as an adult, it's still a great way to open the movie because it's not giving you all the answers. It's saying, we're going to throw some stuff at you, and you're just going to have to sit back and watch, and you'll figure it out eventually. Just enjoy <laughs> yeah. the ride. Yeah. I hate when they <laughs> exactly. over-explain in movies. Yeah. Well, and but also to add to that, if you look at this if you look at this kid's room, you have a complete clue of everything that's going to happen. Oh, yeah, exactly. But you don't yeah. notice it the first time. Right. It's when it comes through the second time, and you notice that. It's like, oh, that's what's, that's what's going Wait on here. Wait a He's second. Every, yeah. Everything in the entire movie is right here. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I love that too. 
the uh when we talk about the differences in the the script and the comic and the novel that the scenes play out pretty much exactly the same except uh in the comic kevin is literally saying things like what is that noise and uh it's coming from the wardrobe you know so this seems to me like there was the comic was working off of a print of the film because the shot of the forest in the comic is like right out of the movie same with the same you know evenly spaced trees that are kind of almost in the lines here then the novel it mentions that the horse is frothing at the mouth a lot of talk about the frothing horse which i guess is something that horses do under heavy exertion when they got the the bit in their mouth they start frothing which makes sense Mm -hmm. i wonder i wonder how they'd approach a scene like this today you know because this all seems to be done in camera with just traveling sets and forced perspective and all those in-camera on-set tricks that you do to like, you know, because this looks like it's three or four locations that have been stitched together into one shot. And uh, as fast as fast as the cuts are, it I don't think it'd be out of the question just to almost do it all in CGI in computer. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I would think, cause they would do, they would, I think they'd shoot the live action elements, but there'd be a lot of compositing and a lot of, uh, a lot of putting things together in post. Less force perspective, maybe. Yeah. I wonder if it would be as good. I'd like to see someone attempt to shoot this sequence, uh, but with today's sensibilities. That would be an interesting, uh, that would be an interesting thing to see. Terry Gilliam was apparently a, a meticulous planner when it came to shots. Yeah. The script describes it in words. But in his head, it seems like he had an idea of what was going on. He had some he had some definite plans. And I don't know if someone else, some other personality attempting to do this would do a tight cut on the on the night. He knew that would work for the effects they had at the time. Yeah. You know. But would they I think these days probably there'd be an establishing shot. You'd get a you know, a, a long cut of the horse swinging his knife and you'd see the You'd see the knight and Kevin and the horse in the same shot as he was swinging the knife or swinging his sword at Kevin, barely missing him. Yeah. You know, there'd be bigger, there'd be wider shots for sure. There'd be way more detail. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a problem of budget. You got a lot of budgetary restraints that will lead to great leaps of creativity. I I often think about the, like the Moss Eisley Cantina scene. He had like 10 aliens. He wanted 50 aliens, but he had 10. And he's like, how am I going to get around this? And so he just did all those close-ups. So you see the close-up of the devil guy, the close-up of the bug guy, the close-up of Hammerhead. And and then it cuts to a shot of, you know, just our heroes talking in an alcove. And you see these little selective shots that have like two or three people in them. But you never get like a wide shot of like all 50 aliens because there weren't 50 aliens. But the result of that is that I I see that bar in my head as densely populated with a bunch of different creatures. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, with Terry Gilliam, a lot of the productions that he worked on, he had $10 and a pat on the back to get it done by Friday. So he's like, no kidding, he's a meticulous planner. <laughs> you know, he'd... He, he's under budgetary and time constraints that were like, this has to be done and it has to be done well for no money and quickly. And so when he came up, I think he brought that sensibility um, to, you know, at least the first six of his films. And he's like, okay, if we do this right, it'll look great and we can be under budget and we can get it done by Saturday. You know, although his films are kind of famous for going over budget and over schedule, aren't they? But 
anyway, I think that's part of what happened here. Is if we stay tight on if we stay tight on the horse, then you know we won't see that it's in my backyard. <laughs> you know, like if you said who if we were going to remake this movie, if you gave this movie to a Christopher Nolan, I don't think he would overexplain it. It might no. have a higher budget and a higher gloss, but I truly believe he respects the. Th- at least he believes that the audience should think for themselves, and I'm not going to have to carry you. You should just pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think if a George Miller did this, he'd be the same way. I think if yeah. George Miller had it, he'd say, well, of course it's obvious. We all know our fairy tales. We all know how kids think. And I don't have to explain this to you. Yeah. The conclusion that we're coming to is that uh, Terry Gilliam, Nolan, uh, those guys, they're all just at a certain level, and they trust their audiences. Yeah. They're just the type of director that trusts their audience to be along intellectually on the ride yeah. with them. I agree. Yeah. They're cut above. He's not making something for a niche audience, but he's he's not making something for a widely general audience either. He is making, he's just making this film that he really wants to make, and he's trying to make it as attractive and as interesting as possible in the way that he knows how without trying to, like, yeah, focus test it across, you know, 15 different target groups or whatever. He's like, this is, I just want to make this really awesome movie as good as I can. Yeah. I, I get that feeling that Terry Gilliam made a movie that he wanted to go see. And yeah. if everybody else likes it too, well, that's great. But if they don't, oh, well, I made the movie I want to go see. It's been a long time since any major studio has done something risky. And when they do, it's 50-50 whether or not it was a dumb idea financially. You know, people are like, I want something original. And then Scott Pilgrim comes out, makes $5. And then they're like, well, see, we gave you something original. You know, but then here's, you know, Marvel movie 23 and it's number one in the theaters for eight weeks. You know, like, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, we can't, we'd love to give you more original stuff, but as a, as a viewing audience, you don't seem to want that. You say you do, but the, the numbers don't lie, you know. The future of that just seems to be on the streamers. Well, yeah. you know, the closest, just, just to show that every now and then they do take a risk. And thankfully, if you are talented, it can pay off. Yeah, you know, just happening to go to Marvel. I mean, Taika Waititi wasn't exactly your mainstream director, and he was brought in because of his independent film work to to helm Thor Ragnarok. Like that was his first big budget movie. They trusted this unknown guy really, and he proved himself. So it does happen. It's it's just rare. And that's kind of the compromise that, that that is happening now. Like they want these new original voices whose smaller films are bringing in good money. And you put them onto a massive flagship project, so you get you get their voice in a sort of sequel series kind of a situation. Well, I think that sort of brings us up to the end of minute four here. What do you think? <laughs> you think? Cause we, we haven't really talked about the minute in the last thirty minutes, but that's no, cool. <laughs> I think we've kind of gotten off track here. Might want no, actually... I love. I, as you can tell, if you've ever listened to any of our. The Time Bandits Minute is a fan project hosted by Curtis Blaze and Duncan Shields. The movie, Time Bandits, was created by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin and is presented by Handmade Films. The novel Time Bandits was written by Charles Alverson and is based on a screenplay by Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. It is published by Severn House Publishing. The comic book adaptation, Time Bandits, was created by the team at Marvel Comics and published by Stan Lee. The screenplay, Time Bandits Movie Script, was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. It was published by Doubleday Dolphin Books. You can find more of us at timebanditsminute.com 
or text us at 712-830-7373. You can also find us on Facebook at Time Bandits Minute, the podcast. Thank you to the Star Wars Minute guys for graciously allowing us to steal the format. If you would like to listen to other Movies by Minutes podcasts, check out moviesbyminutes.com. Join us next time for Minute 5, where you'll hear Dad say, I told you to put that light out and get to bed. Thank you.